So the job of a forensic scientist or a forensic practitioner is really covering a number of things. If we're working at the scene or our colleagues in crime scene investigation are working at the scene, then our job is to find the evidence. Once we've found the evidence, we need to recover it. And we need to recover it in a way that maintains its continuity or its integrity. And then once we've recovered it, the job of the scientist really takes over because we have to analyse that evidence to reveal the story that it might tell within the context of the case in hand. And then the final piece of work that we as the forensic scientists need to do is present that evidence to the court of law. And that is where some real skills around science communication are so, so important so that we can be sure that what we found through our analysis is presented in a way that enables the person who has to make the decision, which is the juror, who is a member of the public, enable them to make that decision with some degree of confidence. Professor Neve McDade, Director of the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee. In this instance, the event that we're following from crime scene to courtroom is the murder of 69-year-old spinster Jean Milne at a house in Broughty Ferry near Dundee in 1912. Across the course of the Inside Forensic Science podcast series, we've stood at the shoulders of the investigation team when they discovered Jean Milne's body. I found about two feet nine inches from the foot of the stair, Miss Milne lying on the carpet on the floor with her head towards the entrance, her feet towards the way leading towards the dining room. On making examination, I found that she was all blood on the top of her head and her face was much swollen. We've heard how, back in 1912, the Broughty Ferry Police were starting to use techniques like blood spatter analysis. The sides of the stair railings at the foot of the stair and on the wall to the right of the stairs were bespattered with blood. And we know from the police statements that the investigation team were well aware of the importance of fingerprint evidence. I found the imprint of three fingers on a piece of paper near the sink where a blood-stained towel was found. These were dispatched to Scotland Yard, but were too blurred to be of any service for identification purposes. And our contemporary crime scene investigators and forensic scientists like blood spatter specialist Joe Millington, who we asked to review the case, were impressed with how the crime scene was approached, managed and assessed. Had I have been there at the time doing the BPA, I don't think the conclusions would have been that different. There would have just been a, an extra seam of information that they could have taken on board that would have essentially corroborated where they got to in the end anyway. I really did find this case utterly fascinating because we always look retrospectively back at historic cases and think, oh, if only they'd had this particular test, then it would have been so much better. But actually, they did a pretty good job. Over the course of the podcast series, we've also considered what some of the biggest changes have been in forensic science over the past century. Professor Lucina Hackman, forensic anthropologist from the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee. I think DNA has to be the one that everybody thinks of. Our increased knowledge about how to protect the scene. And that is tied in with that knowledge about DNA, our knowledge about trace evidence and how important that trace evidence can be. So those two are very closely linked together. For me as well in my area, it would be the CT scan. 
because that CT scan, there's so much information that you can get from it. Whilst you can still do, and you can still do postmortems, you still get the information, and we can still get the information in other ways, that CT scan saves so much time. It does. And it also allows us to present evidence in court without actually putting the jury through seeing some of the things that we see. So CT scans are a great revelation for us in relation to both investigation but also communication. For Commander Dave McLaren of the Metropolitan Police, one of the biggest developments since Jean Milne's case is the digital one. So, so I work in London just now. We have 125 murders last year and there won't be a single one of those murders where there isn't some sort of digital evidence involved in it. It is really, really difficult to be involved in a crime and not necessarily leave a trace at the crime scene, but certainly leave some sort of indication of your intent or their travel there or their contact with someone before it or the motive behind the murder and then their conduct after the crime. Quite often it's those areas that uh, we're able to gather, you know, the really strong evidence because depending on the crime scene, it isn't always the case that there's a digital footprint left there, but in most cases there is. But the role of forensic science doesn't stop at the crime scene. It extends into the courtroom. So that's where we'll be focusing our attention in this final episode in this series of Inside Forensic Science. Before we do that, we need to turn our attention back to the Jean Milne case to find out whether there's a case to prosecute at all. As we heard in the last episode, the investigation is focusing on Jean Milne's London connections, and one man in particular has been brought to the attention of Chief Constable Semple. On the 11th of November, 1912, while at Scotland Yard, I received from Superintendent Neves, Kent County Constabulary, Tonbridge, the following telephone message. We have a man in custody here for false pretenses who will be before the court tomorrow at 11.30 a.m. He gives the name of Charles Warner, 210 Wilton Avenue, Toronto, Canada. This man is a mystery to us and we thought perhaps he might be connected with the Dundee murder. Will you interview him? So let's meet Charles Warner. Here is Warner's first statement to the police in relation to the Jean Milne murder case. I am 38 years of age. I was born in Toronto, Canada, of Canadian parents. I prefer not to give my Canadian address or that of my parents. I gave the Tonebridge Police, Charles Warner, Wilton Avenue, Toronto, as my address. That was my address at one time, but it is not now, and any communication sent there would elicit nothing. I prefer not to say how long it is since I left that address. I was educated at a college. Which college? I declined to say. I am a salesman in business. During the last year, I did a good deal in mining stocks in Canada and United States. I left Montreal on Friday the 2nd of August and went first of all to Philadelphia and then New York. I sailed from New York on the 10th of August. I declined to give the name of the boat or to say where I sailed to, except that it was a European port. I prefer not to say whether I visited any other countries before I landed in England. It was entirely a pleasure trip I was on 
I landed in England at Harwich on the 17th of October 1912, having sailed from Antwerp on the 16th of October. I do not know the name of that boat. I was alone when I landed in England, and it is a downright lie that I ever told the constable who escorted me to the Maidstone Jail on the 5th of November 1912 that I landed at Liverpool on the 2nd of August 1912, then went to London and after to Scotland. I have never been to Scotland in my life. When I landed at Harwich, I took the train directly for London Liverpool Street Station. I prefer not to say whether this was my first visit to England. Up to the time I arrived at Tonbridge, I had not been outside of London. I do not wish to say where I stayed in London or whether I lived in one or more hotel. My explanation about my shirt is that it was dirty and I took parts of it off for cleaning purposes. I know I had dusters in the cell for this purpose provided by the prison authorities. I refuse to give you any further information about myself or to tell you of anyone who can speak to my being in Antwerp and London between the 14th and 22nd of October 1912. I could quite easily tell you if I thought fit, but I distinctly refuse to do so, notwithstanding that you tell me that I am suspected of having murdered an old lady in Scotland about that time. In spite of his protestations of innocence, Charles Warner was moved to Dundee, where he remained under arrest while the investigation team continued to search for evidence which would prove he was the perpetrator. But in the absence of contemporary investigative tools like DNA and digital analysis, all that was available was eyewitness testimony. For the forensic scientists working on a contemporary case, it's not just about the work gathering evidence at the scene and in the lab, it's also about how effectively that evidence is then communicated and conveyed to a lay audience in court. Amanda Peary is the lead forensic scientist for major crime for the Scottish Police Authority Forensic Services. It's difficult for juries or for the lay person to come to understand all these different um, limitations and nuances of, of what can be quite often quite complex DNA evidence in a short period of, of time. So it's very much the forensic scientist's responsibility when they present that evidence that they try their best to present that in, in simple, clear, easy to under understandable terminology, but also to include the appropriate caveats and explanations about what the limitations of any test, not just DNA, uh, and, and the interpretation of that. So that's when we try our best to, to provide a balanced view. So we, we're looking to seek for those versions of events from both the prosecution and the defence so that we can robustly provide a more balanced evaluation of what does that evidence mean and how it, how it got there. Uh, and hopefully that should be clearly explained and presented both in our reports and when given evidence at the court as well. I have to say, I do feel sorry for people who sit on juries. Forensic pathologist Dr Kerry-Ann Shearer. Because the amount of information that they have to process and the quite complicated information, especially when it comes to this sort of evidence they have to process, 
is is really difficult. But when we write our our postmortem reports, we write them for the public. So we don't write them with medical jargon. We keep them as simple as we possibly can. So that the hope is that when a lay, a lay person with no medical background is reading them, which to be fair is the procurator fiscal, they are lawyers, they are not medics. If I know that if I put out a report and I don't have anybody on the phone saying to me, what do you mean by this? Or, oh, I don't quite understand this. I know I've done a good report because I know that when they've read my conclusion, they've completely understood it. So I, I tend to keep it as simple as I possibly can. In court, what makes a, a massive difference is a, is a good advocate, is a good AD who's, who's the prosecutor. So they'll be leading the evidence and they'll be asking me initially questions before I'm cross-examined. And a good advocate knows how to ask the questions in such a way that he makes it as easy as possible for me to answer and for me to answer it in such a way that the jury are following it as well. I am Alex Prentice. I am the Principal Crown Counsel in Crown Office. It is very important that the lawyers understand the nature of the evidence, whether it's scientific, biological, uh, chemistry, whatever it is. It's of vital importance that the lawyer completely understands what the tolerable limits to what is being presented are, because there is a danger that the jury hear about DNA being found and therefore that necessarily means that the accused was in the place at the time. Well, it, it may not mean these things because firstly, it's not possible to date when the DNA was placed there. DNA may be transferred directly or it may be secondary transfer. So I might touch something and give it to you and you take it away and give it to another person who puts it in their flat. You might find my DNA on a coffee table in their flat and yet I've never been there. So we have to understand that, that science. And it's very important that we don't go beyond what is reasonable. Circumstantial evidence is all about reasonable inferences being drawn from primary facts. It's not about speculation. Now, I do have some really complicated cases where I dread going to court because it's very difficult to, to write a straightforward conclusion because there's so much complex stuff going in. But I just have to stand up and try and deliver it away in a way that I hope the jury are understanding. And to be fair, the judge is there as well. And the judge is very good uh, as another lay person that if they're not understanding it, then they know the jury's not understanding it. So they will then ask additional questions or change the route of questioning just to make it a bit easier. So, so it's, it's kind of not just up to us to present our um, evidence. It's very much how it's led by the, the lawyers and, and, and by the judge. And they, they nine times out of 10 do a fantastic job. And I think the information does, does get across. So it's reasonably straightforward. It's important in trials that time is taken to explain the nature of the science before going straight to the point. In prosecutions involving DNA evidence, I always take some half an hour, 40 minutes with a generic presentation explaining what DNA is, how it's detected, and what can be drawn from the finding of DNA. And the same for blood spatter analysis, firearms, discharge, residue, all these things, it's important that we don't just go straight to the point. We have to lay the foundation and not assume 
that the jury will understand these things. We have to educate them. That is, after all, the role of the skilled witness, because a skilled witness is the only witness who's allowed to express an opinion in a court. Not ordinary witnesses don't express opinions. They give evidence on what they saw or heard, but they don't give an opinion, whereas the expert assists the jury by giving evidence in an area beyond the jury's expertise. In the case against Charles Warner, there wasn't any science to be explained. But Charles Warner did need to explain his whereabouts at the time of Jean Milne's death. His initial reluctance to assist the police shifted, presumably when he realised just how serious a situation he was in. And he not only provided the police with astonishing details as to his movements, you'll find this on page 74 of the evidence files if you've been reading them, he also sought out a friend who could back him up. H.M. Prison, Dundee, December 1st, 1912. Friend Andre, pay particular attention to this letter, as I am in Scotland charged with murder. You spoke of going south, but I sincerely hope you are still in Antwerp. You remember you told me you walked from London to Dover in two days? Well, I stole an overcoat in London and started to walk to Dover, but was arrested at Tonebridge. I had lodging and breakfast and could not pay, so was sent to Maidstone Prison for 14 days under the name of Charles Warner. On my discharge, I was arrested and charged with murder in Scotland. I was never in Scotland and have given police full account of my movements since landing at Harvard in August 19th. Go and see Mr. Cox, Vice Consul, and tell him everything you know about me and dates and also names I lived under at your hotel. Tell him exact dates, how you got my parcel at the station and put me in a small room overnight. Tell him about my putting my name in your book the next day and also about writing to the Turkish consul. Be careful about dates. Tell about the maid locking my room door on me and then letting me in. Your boss can prove everything. Don't forget about the young American that you took to the ship. When the officers come, tell them everything. I mean, the boy I borrowed five francs from, Browning, I think. Mention about Mr. Thomas, the cowboy. He came to Antwerp on the same train as I did from Rotterdam. Get the date he registered at your hotel. Try also and find out exact date that I first spoke to you and you told me about a cheap hotel in Brussels. Take the young boy from Terminal Hotel to see Mr. Cox and tell about raincoat with German. In case this letter is forwarded to you, write to the police here or Mr. Cox in Antwerp. Be sure and speak about the warrant you told me boss took out. Truly yours, C.S. Walker. C.S. Walker. We know from the evidence files that Charles Warner went under a number of aliases. Walker, Warner, R.A. Hart and C.S. Ware. If you've rushed to read all the evidence files in the Charles Warner case, you'll already know how his particular part in this story plays out. If you haven't read them, you'll have to wait a while longer.
Back in the courtroom, and Alex Prentice raises an interesting challenge for the forensic scientists, that the jury believes them, not because of how robust their science is, but just because they're scientists. There is always a, a danger of what is sometimes termed the white coat syndrome, that uh, someone comes in with a string of qualifications and experience and speaks of highly technical scientific matters, that the risk is that the jury just simply follow that and accept it without question. But it's important to explore the nature of, of that evidence, to understand what database is being relied upon where comparisons are made, for example, uh, and to know precisely where the limits are. So it, that is very important. There's certainly a lot of criticism with regards to the lack of reliability in forensic science, particularly feature comparison methods. And by feature comparison methods, I mean finger marks, ballistics, tool, anything that you do, pattern, uh, pattern matching or pattern recognition. Fingerprint matter expert Caroline Gibb. Traditionally speaking, it was it was the way that fingerprint, particularly fingerprint evidence, was given in court was very ipsy dixit. It is what it what I say it is because I'm an expert because I because I say so kind of thing, um, and there weren't standards per se back then. You didn't have to uh, offer documentation to the court. You didn't have to offer the full scientific method. It was it was very. Well, I mean, essentially, you could fingerprint with a magnifying glass and hard copy paper, and then you write the name down, and then you ask another fingerprint expert to verify your conclusion or your opinion, I should say, and they say, yep, and it's a, an initial, and that goes to court. Whereas these days, with the exposure of some very high-profile erroneous fingerprint identifications, has created, I think, a very positive change to forensic science as traumatic and tragic as those errors are, the last thing you ever want to do is is convict an innocent person. Um, and this is why reliability is so important and this is why scientific standards are so important. But what's happened from these erroneous identifications is that we have majority of the globe publishing these critical reports calling for more science, calling for validity studies, calling for the accuracy, the reliability, calling for methodologies, like really looking at forensic science under the microscope for the pure fact that we are in charge of public safety and to protect the public and to protect the justice system, we need to ensure that the methods that we use are accurate, valid and reliable. For Caroline, there's always scope for improvement, not just in methodology, but how that methodology is communicated. I think it's probably the most important part and a lot more training needs to go into the, the way that we can articulate our findings and particularly our reasoning process, um, what's happening in our brains when we're, when we're looking at a finger mark. And performing a comparison, fingerprints are very convincing in court and they have been, you know, the standard kind of accepted status quo for a very long time. And, and, and these criticisms with regards to the reliability and validity don't necessarily mean that it's a, it's, a, it's a bad process at the moment. I think the most phenomenal thing that can happen is that we can, once we get the validity behind and the scientific underpinnings of the fingerprint science, it really is very powerful evidence if we can do it properly. So the more we step into this scientific realm, um, yeah, I think that we will be making court a lot safer and, and we will be 
speaking about the scientific method a lot more. It's very important that we're ensuring that we communicate things such as limitations and assumptions and the considerations of the fingerprint science therein. You know, the lack of error rates, for example, or the fact that you weren't there when you saw the finger mark being deposited and, you know, I mean, there's limitations to, to everything and, and that's something that's starting to be published more in court statements these days, which is nice to see. And that allows the judge and the jury, if you're under the jury system, to then um, appropriately weigh the evidence rather than give it, okay, 100%. You can't 100% in science. <laughs> there's, there is always a level of uncertainty and, um, and, and we, have to, we have to cater for that. In order for us to be able to communicate effectively our evidence within the courtroom setting, actually we need to take a step almost backwards. Director of the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee, Professor Neve McDade again. Because the scientist needs to communicate to a whole range of audiences. When we're on scene, we have to communicate to the police. And here our job is to explain what the scientists can do, what we can recover, how we recover it, and what the implications of doing that potentially in the wrong sequence might be, so that we all understand part of that, that crime scene investigation team, we all understand our role and our responsibilities. So we need to be able to communicate to the police and to the crime scene investigators and to other scientists who might be there. Once we then get to the courtroom side of our job, here we have to communicate not just to the jury, but also to the lawyers that are present. And that means communicating what our findings are within the context of the case to the prosecution lawyer, but also to the defence lawyers, and also to the judge. And ultimately, uh, as I said, to the jury. But that communication to the lawyers, prosecution, defence, judge and jury all happens simultaneously because it all happens in real time. And that can be really challenging. It depends on us having a real clarity of what our evidence means in the context of the case that we're being asked to comment upon. It means that we need to understand the limitations of that evidence and we need to be able to present the limitations of that evidence in such a way that the jury who ultimately make the decision about guilt or not have confidence in that decision that they're going to make. Charles Warner's case never came to court. Chief Constable Semple travelled to Antwerp to investigate Warner's claims that he was there during the period in question and his alibi held up. On the papers, I didn't see that there was a case to answer to prosecute, but uh, had there been evidence of a link with the accused and the house itself and, and the scene, then of course that would be very different. And it can take many forms. We've discussed DNA and blood, but soil samples or pollen samples from the garden being found in his shoes, for example, or in his coat or his hair, would equally be evidence of value. But on the papers, there certainly wasn't enough evidence to prosecute him. And indeed, it appears he had an alibi which uh, was, was able to be proved to an extent anyway. We don't know if there were any other leads that the police followed. All we do know is that the Jean Milne murder remains a mystery to this day. So does Neve McDade think we would have solved the case with modern investigative techniques? Possibly. <laughs> Good scientist always says possibly. Um, I think in this case, the key 
areas of evidence that that would be critical if we were looking at, at this case now would of course be DNA, but also the fingerprints and also the blood pattern evidence. So those things combined would give us some very strong, I think, circumstantial evidence for the case. The thing though that really becomes important, I think, from my perspective would be, yes, but what does that mean? Because if this person was already known to have been in that scene as a visitor, for example, then you'd expect their DNA and fingerprints to be there anyway. Was it the poker that was used? And if it was the poker, then were the suspect's fingerprints on the poker? Because that then starts to change the story about the importance of finding that sort of biometric evidence at the scene. So I think we could, we could probably get more evidence of presence at the scene, but you're still then using the skills and the tools of the pathologist, matching them with the skills and the tools of the scientists, in this case around fingerprints and around um, uh, DNA, and then recreating what that event meant. And I think that would be the case in this, in this case, is that there's lots of circumstantial evidence. Is it enough to convict? Well, that's a matter for the jury, not a matter for a scientist. We haven't solved the Jean Milne murder. We never thought we would. But hopefully we've demonstrated that if this had been a modern case, forensic science would have had a significant role to play in tracking down the perpetrator of what was a violent and shocking crime. It's a terribly sad end to an interesting life. Uh, and she obviously liked to travel. She had her own interests. She was a bit of a recluse at her home, but uh, an interesting person and of course all these many years later we're all discussing her personal affairs which is rather sad really but she came to a horrible end and it's a great tragedy no one was ever called to account for that. In Inside Forensic Science the readers were Andrew Thompson, Mark Stephen, David Stenhouse, Dan Holland, Lindsay Moyes, Roy Templeton, Charles Quinnell, Richard Forbes, and Tom Lyne. Our team of forensic experts and commentators were Joe Millington, Caroline Gibb, Helen Ireland, Commander Dave McLaren, Dr Kerry-Anne Shearer, Amanda Peary, Matthew Jaron, Kenneth Baxter, and Professors Lucina Hackman and Neve McDade. The researcher was Heather Duran and the consultant Pauline Mack. The sound mixer was Stephen Bull and the narrator was me, Penny Latin. Inside Forensic Science is an adventurous audio limited production for the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee and is funded by the Leverhulme Trust. <laughs>